Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 31, and we'll go through chapter 30, verse 24. Lend your attention, this is God's word. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave to him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you would have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a great endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew.
our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. This is God's word. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Thus ends God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Our great God, how good you are. You give... Uh, Such good gifts, Lord. You've given us yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ. You've given us your word and your spirits to lead us and to guide us. And so we ask as we come before your word, Lord, uh, that you would grant to us uh, the gift of understanding, of true knowledge of you, Lord, and knowledge which grows us in love. Love for our King, who has loved us even unto death. Love for you, O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Love for one another as the people of God, and indeed, love for a world that is passing away as those who do not know their right hand from their left. Father, you alone can do these things. We rejoice that you promised to do these things and ask that you would posture us in humility at the feet of our King, our Prophet, the one who teaches us even now and who has promised to lead us until he returns. For we ask in his name, amen. If you uh, Google the term uh, revenge fantasy, I don't look too far, but uh, the first couple hits you'll find an article Um, from Psychology Today. And you'll find this article uh, discussing all of the positive benefits of revenge fantasy. It's really interesting. There are a number of movies which set this forth. Someone is a victim of an egregious crime and this sends them into a life of getting even whether imagined or real, you understand how this has taken place, how this scenario has unfolded. The article is setting forth the idea that such revenge fantasy is ultimately therapeutic for someone who's received real harm. Not sort of incidental harm, not that harm of accidentally bumping into one another, but true harm. Says it, imagining getting even with the person who harmed you helps you to bring the world back into balance. It helps you to regain control, uh, regain a sense of worth, uh, regain a sense of equilibrium, regain power. There's a sense in which Scripture does agree with the article in that it acknowledges plainly that we do real harm. Sin does real harm. 
Sin opens a reality that isn't so easily dealt with. Sin hurts other people to a degree that just can't be swept under the covers. It, to use the image of Scripture, it creates a debt. A debt that has to be paid. There's a sense in which Scripture affirms that. But there's a sense that Scripture takes a different path altogether, isn't there? On the first hand, fantasy heals no one. I've never met a person who indulges freely in fantasy and emerges satisfied. Whatever the fantasy you like, sexual fantasy, fantasy of riches and fame and power, who among us has indulged in such a thing? Come out on the other side and say, yes, now I can put that to bed. (laughs) It's patently ridiculous. Fantasy satisfies no one. In fact, indulging in such fantasies has a strange counterintuitive Effect, in that it seems to worsen the condition. I've used this illustration before. I've gotten poison ivy on a number of occasions as a kid. Terrible reaction to it covering my whole body. And you want to itch. And there's a sense in which the itching feels really good for a moment. And then it gives way to a far more powerful discomfort than there was even before the itch. There's a sense in which the indulgence of fantasies has a similar effect. You're not putting the matter to bed. You're sowing to it. You're getting conscripted into it. You're feeding into the life that it somehow has taken on. Our Lord addresses this scenario. He invites us to imagine real harm and injustice being done. This is not an incidental bumping into each other. This isn't I absentmindedly cut someone off. (laughs) I just got in someone else's way or someone just got in my way. This is real harm. This is real injustice. Each scenario that he gives, the slap of the cheek, the rendering of the garment, the going of a mile. These are very difficult scenarios to imagine. Imagine the loss of dignity, the loss of goods and comforts, not extra goods and comforts, but the most basic goods and comforts. Imagine the loss of time, energy, resources, Imagine the loss of humanity. These are not mild losses that he invites us to consider. To be slapped is to be demeaned and ridiculed. To be deprived of so basic a good as clothing is to be naked and vulnerable. To be forced into going a mile is to be made a beast of burden and paraded for all to see. There's even another sense in which you can read these scenarios as sequential, a little mini-drama unfolded, demeaned in private by a slap, 
The shame intensifies through the nakedness of yielding a garment, which reaches a pitch and intensity in the public manifestation of shame as you're paraded not for one mile, but for two. This is a dreadful course, no doubt. The Lord invites us to consider this could happen to you. What then? You could experience this kind of harm. What then? Are we left with the gospel of revenge fantasies? Regain power and control by bending your energy and your effort and your thought with how to get even. How do I right the wrong? How do I balance the scales? You devote yourself to it and it consumes you. Oh, that's no gospel at all. For such a person swept along such a trajectory is hardly regaining control, but rather is mastered by the evil that has been unleashed upon them. So what does the Lord set forth? What would he have us do? What recourse would he have us take in the face of the prospect of such harm? Well, I hope you can already anticipate what he's setting forth, not just here, but in the gospel itself. That it's ultimately he and not we who was made to walk this awful road. He was the one who took the slap. He was the one who yielded the garment. He was the one publicly displayed in a shameful condition. And it gets worse. This wasn't done to him by some unthinkable abstract group. We did this to him. We're not primarily the one who is slapped. First and foremost, we're the one who slaps. And the one who received it is none other than the Lord of glory. It's only by considering first that he is the one who walked this road for us in our stead. That we are freed from the only gospel that the world has to offer, which is get even. And placed in an economy of riches, of grace, and kindness, and forgiveness, the likes of which are unfathomable. Such that whatever slap we do take following Christ, whatever goods we do yield following Christ, whatever public shame is heaped upon us as we follow Christ, we can say, I count it all as nothing. Because the one who walked this road has taken me by the hand and has led me into the kingdom that is untouchable by the princes of this world, untouchable by the cruel in this world. The Lord Jesus Christ freed us from this economy of revenge by establishing us in an economy of grace which he has purchased for us at the cost of becoming a curse in the most dreadful way conceivable. 
So let's consider our Lord's teaching as our great King calls us down this patently lovely path as one who has walked it, as no one else ever will be forced to do. So first we consider the goodness of justice. That's how he opens. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You probably know this is a direct quote from the Old Testament in several places. It occurs in three places in particular, but the principle itself is constantly showing up in Scripture. So you read in Exodus chapter 21. If there is harm done, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Then again in Leviticus 24, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person, that shall be given unto him. So once more we're forced to ask, what, what is our Lord correcting here? These words are from God. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You hear it. It's a number of different iterations. So is our Lord correcting God's word? We've seen time and time again that that's not the case. That what our Lord is interacting with is distortions of God's word. But what do we have in this simple principle, eye for eye, tooth for tooth? This is a simple principle of justice, is it not? It's a simple principle that the punishment must fit the crime. This is a simple principle that if you do wrong, then it's appropriate that you receive not good, but punishment. This is something that's not foreign to God. We confess, children, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, and then justice. God is just. There's a sense in which we stand in awe of the one who only ever does right. Who only ever does what is right. There's no injustice in him. He can't be bought. He can't be bribed. He's no respecter of persons. You'll encounter this strain throughout Scripture. There's no impartiality in God. Meaning what? Well, we see a rich person and we kind of cower. Like, how can I do whatever you want, sir? We can be swayed by the impressive people of the world. We want to be liked. If you ever encountered your hero, you feel this impulse. Like, I just, I just want you to like me. Now imagine you're in a position then where you have to render some sort of justice or judgment upon the hero. You're going to be swayed. We see this time and time again. We see this in our own tendency to downplay the severity of our sin and magnify the severity of others. We show partiality all the time, don't we? My sin is almost always explainable. If you just knew the context, if you just knew the backstory, if you just knew the day that I had had, well, then you would pardon me. But then we come into contact with the sins of others. Like, it's egregious. It's unthinkable. 
Inexcusable! We're very partial to our own cause. (laughs) We do this for the cause of people we like, as long as the sin isn't against us. But if it's people that we like who have sinned against others, we're like, wow, he's just got the short end of a stick. But someone we don't like sins, we're like, no, throw the book at him. (laughs) He probably had it coming. We're not good judges. We're very partial. We can be bought. (laughs) God is not so. He is perfectly just in all of his dealings, and he's given this as a gift to his creation, knowing the reality of sin, knowing that without this, it would be anarchy. Paul sets forth this principle in Romans 13 and says, Give thanks that the civil magistrate maintains a semblance of this principle. Give thanks that as God's ministers, they've been given the sword such that evil can be kept at bay and good can have room to flourish. Guys, give thanks that that's the case. I had opportunity, given those lectures last weekend in Maryland on the book of Judges, to revisit that tumultuous time and was struck once more by chapter 5 in the song of Deborah where the state of things was such that everyone was afraid to go outside. No one would travel on the roads because you were sure to get robbed, beaten, molested. Because I took my family for a walk around the lake and I was met with nothing but smiles. One gentleman even went out of his way to say, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Guys, give thanks. That's God's common grace. Justice is a gift. The fact that a semblance of justice exists, and the fact that the rule of law continues in this land, it's a gift. Things aren't perfect, but we're all here, aren't we? Traveling roads safely, right? Taking a walk around a lake with a woman and four children under five with literally no concern that it's going to result in anything but refreshment and perhaps a mild scolding to my children who try to jump in the lake when we walk around the lake. <laughs> but that's the extent of the inconvenience that's going to meet me on that day. And that's God's gift. Guys, it hasn't always been like that. It's not like that everywhere. It is here. Justice is a gift. This principle is a gift. The problem isn't this principle, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In fact, God even tells the church to take solace from his justice. That's what Paul says, 2 Timothy, it's an uncomfortable passage. Sorry, 2 Thessalonians. I'll read it just so we get it right. 2 Thessalonians, starting verse 5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know the gospel and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he setting forth here to his little suffering church? God's justice. God is just, he says. Take heart as you are experiencing injustice, little church, for such will not always be the case, little church. There's nothing wrong with the principle of justice. Justice is good. It's who God is. It's his gift to a world that frequently knows injustice. But notice what Paul does here. He does not say, take matters into your own hand. Mm. He doesn't say, indulge in revenge fantasies. Imagine all the ways you're going to get even. He sets before the church the same thing that Proverbs sets before the church. Proverbs 20. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. So Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The problem isn't justice. The problem is us. Just like all of these other good gifts that we can seize upon to exercise the basest tendencies of our hearts. That's the problem. And that seems to be the teaching that was swirling at the time. It wasn't that people were too in awe of God as the God of justice. That wasn't the problem. For such a posture would result in humility, trust, because the Lord Jesus Christ knew his Father perfectly as the God of justice. And what did that yield? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, pronouncing blessing as he was reviled. That's what awe at God's justice results in. The Spirit opens our eyes in the face of harm that we've received to the fact that we ought to recuse ourselves from seeking justice on the one who's harmed us. Because we're probably not going to be able to do that in a way that's fair. And that's the real wisdom of this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, isn't it? It's not just to ensure that justice reigns, it also ensures that vengeance isn't the law of the land. There's a principle of restraint in it, is there not? Our our temptation is, you take my eye, I take your eye and the eyes of all of your families. You take my tooth, I destroy everything that you've built. Ours is not the song of justice. Ours is the song of escalation. That's what vengeance does, doesn't it? It escalates things. You see this in the Samson narrative. I was struck again. Obviously, I've got judges on the mind. I was in it a lot over the weekend. It was a lovely time. I bring you greetings from the church in Bowie. The Samson narrative in chapter 15 
He's walked away from his wife. His poor father-in-law is like, I don't think he's coming back. It's like, well, yeah, he just killed 30 Philistines and left. So, fair. So he takes his wife and he gives her to a companion. And Samson comes back, where's my wife? And then it starts snowballing from there. He's like, I've been wronged. I'm going to do this wrong. So what does he do? He burns down all of their fields. So what do they do? They attack Israel. So what does he do? He kills the entire Philistine army. It's one step outdoing the next. The whole time, what does he say? As they've done to me, so I've done to them. The Philistines, as he's done to us, so we've done to them. It's like, no, you've all outdone each other in the violence that you've rendered giving subtle testimony to the fact that that path doesn't satisfy because you've got to take more. And even then, you're not satisfied. The principle of restraint here is eye for an eye. It's not eye for a life or life for an eye. The Song of Lamech, Genesis 4. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for bruising me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The principle of justice governs the life of Cain, God's common grace, a semblance of it. But the bloodlust of man is vengeance. I will have more blood, more blood. But it also takes responsibility for justice out of our hands. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is never given to a private individual. <laughs> It's given to the magistrate or an individual is assured that God's justice will ultimately have out. And so humility ensues. The problem isn't justice. The problem is the bloodlust of our hearts. The problem is that we are remarkably partial to our own cause. The problem is if anybody trounces upon our glory, they have defiled the most sacred and precious thing imaginable, and they must pay. We are the problem. Our greedy, bloodlusty hearts are the problem. Mark if it isn't so. Mark how quickly you turn, even on your loved ones, when they get in your way. Not even when an offense is intended. Just when an offense is taken. We turn on a dime, don't we? I'm right there with you. I go running on the path around the lake. Even when I come on, people who are just walking in the way. They're taking up the whole path. Admittedly, you shouldn't do that. But I come upon them, and I'm like, you're not even fit for society! <laughs> this is anarchy! You take up one side of the path! <laughs> You've been there. Don't laugh as if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> The Lord exposes our hearts here in that we are most zealous for our own cause. We're most zealous for self-preservation. And what we dole out when we've been wronged is hardly justice. It's vengeance. It's our cruelty. He says, take a step back. You're not fit for that office. <laughs> In fact, you're disqualified. <laughs> 
Now stand in awe of what you've received as those who belong to me. But not only does he call us to shrink back from vengeance, he commends this way of loveliness. These are some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, are they not? I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What path does he call us down in the face of harm rendered unto us? It's a path of patience, isn't it? Again, you feel the wrong, and everybody knows sort of what's taking place at a biological level. Your blood kind of goes up. Your mind kind of gets disoriented. You're about to enter the fray, blow for blow, word for word, hurt for hurt. The path he sets forth here is be slow to anger. Overlook an offense. It's going to be okay. (laughs) The path of patience. Not reacting with the first thing that crosses your mind. Not spewing the first intensity of passion that creeps up in your heart, which whiffs of the flesh. Destroy, destroy, destroy. Just take a moment. Again, Proverbs. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook an offense. It's the path of patience, but it's also the path of wisdom. I'm struck here by the connection between the wrong done and the path taken. Do you notice that? That the first slap isn't met with a handful of money. It's met with a willingness to bear the second slap. The garment isn't rendered with giving of the home. It's rendered with another garment. The mile is rendered with a second mile. There's a consideration of how to transmute the ill into a related good. That takes a spirit of wisdom, doesn't it? It also takes a spirit of wisdom to know what exactly the Lord envisions in terms of the scenarios where this spirit is applicable. One of the most consistent conversations you'll find in the commentators is, does this mean we're never allowed to stand up for anything, like, at all? Like, do we just lay down all the time? So if my child slaps me in the face, do I turn the other cheek? So no, that's... Not what it's teaching here. If your child slaps you in the face, I assure you it's not an occasion to let the bloodlust flow. That's going to go well. You called down the thunder, Junior! (laughs) No, we're called to enter into those moments and render the child good, even though they've rendered us ill, and that takes the shape of discipline, does it not? We don't make discipline an occasion for our cruelty. We don't make discipline an occasion for taking revenge upon our children. And that can be played out in all of the difficult scenarios that inevitably 
are raised in the light of this text. What if my family's being attacked? Do I just have to lay down? One of our elders told me a story of a young boy in Michigan who saw his sister uh, being taken into the woods by an adult. It's terrifying, right? They're home alone, out of the woods comes a stranger, and he's dragging the sister away. So what does the boy do? Grabs his slingshot, a marble, and nails him. The Lord blessed the flight of that marble. (laughs) The Lord prepared that boy's hands for war. (laughs) Yes and amen. Those are outliers. Those are exceptions. If the Lord ever puts you in a position like I pray, he blesses you with the spirit of strength and wisdom to love your family well. But notice how that's coming from a place of love, not personal vengeance. It's coming from a place of compassion for one who cannot defend themselves, not a place of rank cruelty where your honor's been trampled. Again, you can hash through all these exceptions, but the principle is plain, is it not? It's the bloodlust that he quells with the spirit of seeking good. That's what he commends elsewhere through the servant Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It almost can't be more emphatic than that. Always seek to do good to everyone. (laughs) He even goes out of his way to make sure that he knows this isn't a principle that's just exercised to the church. He says, always seek to do good to one another, that's the church, and to everyone, that's the world. Now, the shape of this rendering unto good, again, takes a mind of wisdom. The call here is not only ever do to the world what they're going to like. (laughs) That's not the call. The call is plain. Christians, you're never warranted to devote yourself to seeking someone's ill. You're never warranted in employing what the... Lord has given you by virtue of the resources of mind, the resources of time, the resources of energy, the resources of material good, to say, how do I imagine revenge? (laughs) Even in those instances where the world receives something that we do as ill, the gospel, an act of love, Paul says, your call is plain. You are to seek their good. You're not responsible for how it's received, but you're never warranted to take up the cause of doing someone harm. How can he enjoin such a path on us? How can he call us down such a a radically counterintuitive way. Well, partly we've already alluded, because he calls us to trust. He calls us to trust in the one who will make everything right in the end. He calls us to trust in the word of the cross. That is God's plain word to the world that says he doesn't wink at sin. 
that every single wrong that's been done will either have been dealt with perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ or will be exacted from the hand of the sinner by the judge who only ever does what is right. But that takes trust, doesn't it? It confronts us with some of our most basic fears, namely that we don't think God's going to do right. You're not going to do it how I want you to do it. You're not going to do it in the timing I want you to do it. They're going to get away with it. I know they are. To which he says, take a step back. Relax. You've disqualified yourself from this position. But I'm qualified. And I assure you, my Father's glory is my earnest desire. But he also calls us to hear, as we mentioned at the very beginning, that we're not the one who takes the slap. We're the one who is given the slap. It's only a meek heart. It's only a mild heart. It's only a lowly heart. It's only a contrite heart that takes a slap from a human being in the light of the cross and says, I deserve far worse. Whatever they strip here, dignity, goods, honor, time, energy, resources, Christ says, I'm your dignity. I am your riches. And whatever honor the world seeks to take from you in a public arena is going to pale in comparison to the glory you're going to enjoy with me when I come into my kingdom and I announce to the world that you are my bride, my brother, my friend. We can be sure that that is indeed the case because he did bear the slap. He did render the garment. He did go as he was forced to carry his cross. And he did so not because the Roman government or the first century Jews egregiously forced him to do that. Indeed, they did. But the theological reason under all of that was because the Father was pleased to lay our sins upon him. We reviled him. We despised him. Our voice was in the crowd yelling, crucify him. And what did he render unto us as we rendered unto him harm? It wasn't harm, beloved. It was blessing. It was intercession. It was life to make known the excellencies of this king and this way and assure his people that indeed God is good and trustworthy. Will you trust him? Will you heed this call? May he grant to us all a portion of this excellent spirit that we may manifest to a world that knows vengeance that there is a better way. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer. Almighty God and Father, how excellent are your ways. Grant to us the ears to hear. Grant to us that portion of life which Christ promises unto us. 
that we may continue to stand in awe of what we have received in the stead of what we deserve. And we may taste of a power that is most excellent, Lord, in a world that is passing away. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.